0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 18, a continuation of Exodus chapter 20. All right, very well. Um, Today, we're going to continue a deep and detailed look at what among the church at least, is labeled as the Ten Commandments. How could a such a a standard icon of the Christian Church as the Ten Commandments ever be labeled as controversial? That's what we began with last week in our study of Exodus chapter 20. And what we discovered immediately is that even the title the Ten Commandments is not itself um, a real title. It never appears in the Bible. But the word command and commandments also never appears regarding these instructions. The Hebrew word that is usually translated in the scriptures as command or commandment is mitzvah. Now instead the word, the Hebrew word used among what we call the Ten Commandments is dabar. And dabar means word. So the Greek translation of this Hebrew phrase is correct. The Greek translation is Decalogue, and that means ten words. Now this is not minor, because what the so-called Ten Commandments amount to are statements of fact from the Lord. They are the foundational principles from which all the following laws of Torah shall come. The second controversy we discussed concerned the numbering of the commandments, or words. And we found that in the original scripture, the first commandment was not you shall have no other gods before me. Rather, it was I am Jehovah your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So the first statement or principle of God is to identify himself as yud heh vav those four Hebrew letters. And this is acutely important and necessary because in that time all gods had names and one needed to know just which god was communicating his instructions. And so the God of the Hebrews gave the people of Israel his name. yud Hey vav Hey. Now we're not going to get into some long argument about pronouncing this name because there are varying reasonable opinions about it. But since the Jews stopped about 300 BC or so pronouncing the Lord's name, the vowel sounds used have been more or less lost, so it's difficult for anybody to claim with certainty that they know just how it was verbalized. Be that as it may, The you shall have no other gods before me was the original second commandment. Sometime before the Babylonian exile, the Jews stopped treating the I am Yehoveh who brought you out of the land of Egypt as as one of the ten words. After Babylon, the Jewish sages once again began to include I am Yehoveh your God as the first commandment and at the approach of the second temple period it was once again excluded and back and forth it's gone over the centuries. Okay. Later Christians adopted this off and on Jewish tradition and format of making the second commandment is the first but in for entirely different reasons than the Jews did it. Okay. The original first commandment explicitly directed these ten commands, these ten words to Israel. And since Constantine of the Roman Empire had officially deemed the church as a Gentile religion, the mention of Israel had to be removed if the new anti-Jewish church was going to consider the Ten Commandments as the guiding principle to all Christians. Well, the controversies don't end there. Okay, today we're gonna to take up the actual commandments or better words themselves and delve into the meaning they originally held within the Hebrew culture they were given. Okay, now let me say right up front that we're gonna be dealing with some very difficult and sensitive subjects over the next couple of weeks. Okay, it's my goal to discuss them in the most inoffensive and loving and honest manner possible with you. However, we cannot simply avoid the challenges that these principles represent because we cannot simply go on saying that on the one hand, we so very much believe in these scriptural God principles called the Ten Commandments, and on the other, we ignore them. Okay. and neither can we determine to honor our cherished and familiar traditions whether they're jewish traditions or christian gentile traditions above the plain meaning and expression of the holy scriptures even when they seem to conflict in some cases there will be what i think are quite definitive answers and solutions in other cases There will be deep shades of gray that remain. Okay. But in all cases, I want all of us to leave here tonight loving the Lord and one another as much or more as when we walked in. Okay. So let's start Exodus 20 and take a look at the first word, which is contained in verse two. Exodus 20, verse two. I am, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it says Adonai in the original Yud Hey Vav Hey. Okay, I am Yehovah, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the abode of slavery. Here, God Yehovah is making it clear to Moses and Israel just whom is speaking. Okay. Remember. At that time, the people of Israel still did not fully grasp the concept that there was but one God in all existence. And Jehovah is also stating very plainly that he is the God of the Hebrews. He's the same one who struck Egypt, who rescued Israel from Egypt, and he brought them here to Mount Sinai. And therefore, it is Israel with whom he is making this covenant. But we will find, as we study the covenant of Moses, that foreigners, Gentiles, may join Israel. And if they do, they're to be considered first-class citizens. In other words, this covenant is with Israel and all who will join themselves to Israel. Okay, This is nothing new, frankly. This provision of non-Israelites being joined to, grafted into, being adopted by Israel was also part of the covenant that Yehovah made with Abraham. Okay. Now the Lord is also making something else very clear and we all need to take note. Those people whom the Lord have, has redeemed, Israel in this case, have obligations to Him. Among those obligations they have our loyalty and obedience to his principles and ordinances. This brings up a principle that we often forget. The Torah commands and all the Bible instructions, including those from our Savior, are really for the redeemed. Okay, To follow the Lord's principles and commands without first being redeemed is the truest definition of legalism. That is legalism. But for a saved person to follow the Lord's commands is the normal and expected response. There is another underlying principle at play here. As a result of our acceptance of the Lord's redemption, we take on certain obligations that the rest of the world simply doesn't have. Jehovah says, I brought you out of bondage. And now here is what I expect of you. I cannot tell you how it depresses me that so many believers honestly think that their redemption is the last work or obligation they ever have to God. Because our redemption was never a work of ourselves or of any man in the first place. Our redemption was a 100% work of the Lord. Okay, Let's move on to Exodus uh, 20, verses 3 through 6. You are to have no other gods before me. You are not to make for yourselves a carved image or any kind of representation of anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water below the shoreline. You're not to bow down to them or serve them. For I, Adonai your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my commands. Now, this has to go down as one of the most important of all the commandments and as the one principle of the ten that might be the most consistently violated by God's people throughout the entirety of the Bible. And this is because the insidious nature of idolatry shows up in ways that neither the people of the Bible era nor we modern folks might expect. Okay. Notice that there are four identifiable principles set down in the second word. No other gods, no making symbols of deity, no worshiping symbols, and punishment for violation. Yehovah telling Israel they are to have no other gods is not just a quaint little saying. The Hebrew people absolutely believed there were other gods in existence, gods that were gods for other nations and peoples. At this time in history, Israel's take on what God meant by all this was that he was the only God that they were permitted to have. Okay. What is key to understanding the second word is that while the prohibition against making carved images and representation certainly applies to any deity, real or imagined, this statement includes and in fact may primarily refer to the making of representations of the God of Israel. Okay. And the reason for this prohibition against the making of God images of the God of Israel is twofold. First, no representation of Yehovah can possibly be adequate or sufficiently holy. And second, the Lord is not of this world. And therefore, nothing that a man could make from his mind, with his hands, nothing that could exist in a mere physical realm could ever capture God's image. The Lord is not part of this creation. He is not physical. He is above all things. He's not in all things. Okay. He is entirely different than any other being, any entity, anything. Therefore, any attempt at representation of his image is pure folly. Okay. It's inaccurate. And here in Exodus 20, he labels it as against his will. Now, this second word confronts me personally. It hits me head on. And it might you as well, and I I sure wish, (laughs) in many ways it didn't. We're told in these verses, rather plainly, with absolutely no wiggle room, not to make any representation of deity, well, certainly not of the Holy Godhead. And that incorporates a depiction of anything in the heavens, anything that lives on the dry earth, and anything that lives beneath the sea. Now, this was a revolutionary concept for the world at that time. And the Hebrews really didn't know how to take this command. Okay. Every god from the time mankind turned corrupt right on up to this time in Exodus, they all had some familiar type of visible representation. All right. and, and in fact, they demanded such a representation and these were almost always based on some creature or object that occurred in nature. Typically it was a star, it could have been the sun, it could have been the crescent moon or an animal of some kind. In many cases it was a human form. Some cases it was a hybrid animal in human form. Okay, The, the mind of that era thought that if one didn't have a visible God figure to worship, how could one worship at all? Okay. Now, although many times the animal or object chosen to represent a particular God was what the people actually envisioned that God as looking like, as often as not, it was that the form simply represented some attribute or quality of that God. A bull represented strength. Okay? A frog represented um, the life-giving qualities of water. An eagle or a falcon represented lofty majesty. Often if a god had multiple attributes, several different symbols would be used for that same deity. Symbols for the same god could even vary from region to region and they might change over time intended to reflect a society's cultural tradition. But here, for the first time, is a God, Jehovah, that makes makes it an unbendable instruction that absolutely no representation, no symbol of any kind is to be made of his person. Probably nobody in this room would disagree with this interpretation of this commandment. If we look back into history, we'll see that really, only rarely, does an entirely new symbol even come along? Okay. Humans have proved to be better copycats than creators. Right. Most of the time one culture will simply adopt a symbol from another or earlier culture perhaps making a minor change to it and then attach some new meaning to it. Okay. Time passes and pretty soon the new user of that old symbol loses any idea of where it came from in the first place or that it by no means was their culture's unique invention. Such is how it is with symbols, which for some reason mankind simply cannot seem to do without. Humans are very visually oriented creatures. Ishtar was the goddess of fertility. By the way, she is also, sadly, the source of the name in several traditions, for Easter. Okay. She had many symbols, but the most predominant one was the rabbit. Okay. And in general, those who worshipped Ishtar did not believe that she was, nor did she look like, a cute little bunny rabbit. Rather, for the pretty obvious reasons of fertility, the rabbit was chosen as her symbol. Okay. Ishtar is but the Western European name for Astarte. Astarte is but the Greek name for the biblical Canaanite goddess Ashtoreth. They're all one and the same. The scriptures show us that this imaginary bunny god, right, Ashtoreth, was a constant problem for Israel because from the, from time to time the Hebrews would actually take up Pastoreth worship. And of course, Jehovah condemned this practice and Israel, Israel for worshiping her. Now, I doubt anybody would argue against this as being a prime example of what God is talking about in his prohibitive command against the manufacture and use of symbols and images. So far, so good. But here's where it gets sticky. Okay? As I was researching about the history of symbols, particularly ones that used animal representations, it struck me one of my favorite and most precious symbols. All right. One that I associate with my faith is a fish, the sea animal. And I started wondering about how many of us have these fish symbols on our cars or around our necks, on our bookmarkers, who knows where else. You walk through my house, there's no telling you where you might find one from, at least from a while back. All right. And I thought, well, certainly that couldn't possibly have any connection with the meaning of the second commandment. After all, we don't worship that fish symbol. But the more I read and reread the second commandment, Looked up and looked it up, and went over it in the original Hebrew. I examined biblical scholarship documents about it, went to websites that had various explanations about the origin of this symbol, reviewed numerous articles in Christian publications explaining what the fish symbolized, counter articles refuting what others claimed, and the more confusing this whole thing became. All right, and the more the wisdom behind Jehovah's principle of the second commandment started to become clear to me. Now, in the end, I couldn't deny that the fish symbol I so dearly love might be something I've got to reconsider. Might it actually violate the symbol, or rather the the spirit, if not the letter, of the principle of the second word. Now, we all know what fish symbol I'm talking about, so I'm not going to explain it but I'd like you to consider this. Have you ever seen this symbol I have up here right now? That same fish symbol with little legs added to it and the word Darwin written in the middle of it? Well, it's become a rather popular anti-Christian symbol to combat the Christian fish symbol idea. The idea is kind of similar to capturing the enemy's flag and desecrating it, and then displaying it to humiliate the enemy. So not to be outdone, some clever Christian came right back with another new symbol that had a big fish with the word truth in it, and a little fish with the word Darwin in it, and the big fish was eating the little fish. One desecration deserves another one, right? Now, although that's pretty funny, Exactly what does this demonstrate about the lofty position that this symbol holds in our thoughts and our hearts when we'll fight over it and we'll even get into a one-upsmanship game over it with non-believers? At the very least, within the church, the fish symbol most certainly has come to represent Yeshua, who, in case we've forgotten, is himself God the very same God who set down this principle of no images. Now I've heard some believers say that it doesn't represent Jesus, it represents Christianity in general. Well I can accept that. Alright, and I think that a lot of people see it as simply a general religious icon that indicates the user of it as identifying him or herself as being a Christian. But I can also tell you that millions, including myself, have either consciously or unconsciously, to some degree or another, looked upon that symbol as representative of Jesus Christ. Okay? And therein lies part of the problem. We create or use symbols that please us. Symbols that we feel very comfortable in justifying and rationalizing. And don't think too much about just what it is that that symbol represents to others or even deep down to ourselves. I mean, we can get awfully careless and frivolous with these things okay? in an effort to create an outward identity for ourselves. Where most believers get in trouble is not that we intentionally set out to offend the Lord by sinning. Rather, we take that first seemingly harmless, if not completely well-intentioned step and then eventually look up and find ourselves a long way from that path of righteousness. I'm sure you've noticed that many variations of those fish symbols have now been created. Some are just bare outlines of a fish. Others have the word Jesus in English written in it. Still others have the Greek letters that you see up here uh, transliterated into the English alphabet. Okay. These letters, I-X-Q-U-S, in the middle of the fish. Does anybody here know what those letters actually mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's an acrostic, actually. Okay. It takes the first letters in Greek of each word of the phrase, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. All right. And it forms a word. All right. In other words, it undeniably identifies the fish symbol with Yeshua. And that word in Greek is ichthus. Ichthus. It means fish. Okay. So it's pretty hard to ignore that that symbol is indeed of a fish. And B, that as concerns an awful lot of believers, that fish, as far as they're concerned, represents the Messiah. My point's not to single out the fish symbol. It's merely an example that is in common usage. So catch your breath for a minute while I pick on something else. I've also heard many of my Catholic friends defend their use of statues of Christ and that they don't worship those statues nor do they think that somehow there is an essence of the Savior in those pieces of plastic perhaps but I can't count the number of times I've personally observed people praying at the feet of that statue kissing it wiping their tears upon it All right. or the number of times I've heard of an anti-Catholic desecrating one of those statues and touching off a melee. As we get into the study of the wilderness tabernacle in Leviticus and look at the design of it and the various altars and implements that were to be used in it, we will see that each one of those items was God-ordained and given to Moses in detail to be constructed precisely as instructed. Further, not one of those items were ever designed to represent Jehovah. Not the Father, not the Son, not the Holy Spirit. None of those objects were symbolic of the Godhead. Some were representative to a degree of his attributes of holiness and mercy, among others. But their main purposes were to instruct Israel about the Lord's holiness and to depict a future reality, a foreshadowing of things that would be accomplished by the Messiah. All right. What we will notice when we study about the tabernacle is that none of these symbols violated the principle of the second word. Nothing in the tabernacle used representations of animals or sea creatures or humans or stars or moons or suns to symbolize God. Jehovah himself designed all the wilderness tabernacle tools and implements and altars, especially for a purpose, which was the teaching of principles and the foreshadowing of future events, not as representations of the Hebrew faith or of him. The problem, folks, is this. We would prefer to believe that we can, in all of our modern sophistication, make or buy and use our own representations of God or symbols of our faith because we wouldn't ever let ourselves look upon that symbol as an object of worship or as it actually being God. Yet human nature is such that some element of that occurring is almost unavoidable. Okay, The Israelites could never seem to stop slipping back into idol worship. But see, the thing is, Worshiping a symbol isn't necessarily the only issue that is the point of the second commandment. God didn't say, hey, I'll tell you what. I give you permission to go ahead and make these symbols of faith and of deity, provided you will avoid worshiping them. He said, first, don't make them. Second, don't worship them. He knows human nature. Our Creator knows that step one, making the symbols, would inevitably lead to step two, worshipping those symbols to one degree or another. Now let me give you a familiar analogy that's readily accepted, I think, within most Christian denominations. Our pastors warn us not to attach too much importance to our jobs or our wealth or our cars, our hobbies, anything like that. Why? Because the danger is that we'll put the importance of those things, even the importance of our families, above God. Right? And we're told, and most of us rightfully accept, right, that anything that we put above or even on the same level as the importance of God in our lives is idolatry. Right? Okay, It is that these overly important things in our lives become our gods. And when most of us hear our pastors speak this, we shake our heads up and down all right, in agreement because in our heart of hearts, we know this is true. Okay. We hate it. We wish we could control it. We didn't intend to make our hobby more important than following God. But little by little, it became that way. We didn't intend to make the earning of money more important than God, but little by little it came to dominate our lives. And even when we do attach more importance to earning and spending money than to God, we certainly don't like to think of it as worship of those things, but it is. It works the same way with symbols. And by the way, some of the oldest Hebrew teachings of the ancient sages ever found agree that the making of the symbols and the worshipping of the symbols are two separate issues and instructions. Yehovah knew that these symbols would be the source of disharmony, if not outright anger and hatred between people and nations who revered their favored symbols, but opposed the symbols of others, because they were offensive to them. I mean, my goodness, wars are started over these religious symbols. Okay. We even have battles within the church over symbols. The Protestant denominations constantly criticize and demean the Catholic Church's use of the cross because it usually depicts Jesus on it. And Protestants don't care for the Catholic proclivity to fill their houses of worship with statues of Jesus and Mary and the saints. The Catholics respond by jumping all over Protestants for use of the Bear Cross or the Triple Cross, and interestingly enough, for the use of the fish symbol. Various Protestant denominations constantly berate one another for using or not using as the case may be, the triple cross, banners hanging in the sanctuary, and too many more symbols and icons to even get into. Jews see the cross as terribly offensive, because it is to them nothing but a cruel execution device used to kill literally millions of their own people. Most Christians see the Star of David as being an abolished, or now meaningless, Jewish symbol, or worse, as a defunct symbol of a people who, who refused to accept Messiah or even participated in killing him. I mean, often we attach the term sacred to our symbols. In other words, the symbol itself takes on such importance that we actually attach some measure of holiness to it because of what it represents to us. So is it any wonder that these various symbols elicit such emotion and discord between opposing groups, and is it any wonder why it is that God speaks against it? Yehovah okay. knew that while a few, a few among the stronger in faith might be able to make these symbols of something symbolic of their faith, without also making them objects of objects of worship. The reality is that a substantial number of worshippers are just not that strong. God's solution? Don't make them in the first place. He doesn't see them as honoring to him. Nowhere does the Lord define a symbol of his deity and then say, now fight to the death to protect that symbol. No? No. No matter how well-meaning or of good intention the making of these symbols might be, the downside is almost always bigger than the upside. Now, I readily acknowledge that when it comes to obeying the letter of this God-breathed instruction, that what's prohibited does seem to be, first, objects we see in the skies, second, land creatures, and third, sea creatures as symbols of deity. That does seem to leave the door ajar, perhaps, to a symbol that doesn't employ any of the forbidden three. So if we can, we just have to have symbols, perhaps we ought to stick to the very few that we can unequivocally find in the Bible that are God ordained to be used as representations of God's attributes and foreshadows and principles. Okay. And the only ones I'm aware of are those used in the construction and service of the wilderness tabernacle. I don't know any others. Okay, Jehovah thought the issue of symbols was so important that he included it in the ten words. Now, I told you this was a sticky issue. All right. And I want to make it crystal clear that I'm not judging or condemning your choice to wear an icon. I'm saying that at the least, there is a warning here. That while you may be able to resist the temptation to see it as but an outward expression of your faith and in no way a representation of God, how things like this are taken by others, even some of your own faith, are dangerous. Okay, I learned a long time ago to leave my crosses and my fish and my American flags even at home when I went abroad, particularly to Israel. Because while we understand what we mean by these items, others have a rather different understanding and what might make a good witness for the Lord here doesn't somewhere else. In Exodus 20, verse 5, still dealing with the second word, it says that God is a jealous God. Interesting use of a word. Jealous. That's always kind of bothered me, because frankly when we think of a man or a woman being jealous, it's a rather negative statement. Okay. In some ways, when we harbor the emotion of jealousy, it, it reveals serious faults in us, even if there might be a reasonable cause for it. Yet looking at the word in Hebrew helps us a little bit. In Hebrew, the the word is kana, and it is most often translated into English as jealousy, but it has an interesting sister word, kina, which also is usually translated as jealousy. Here's the difference between the two. Kina is used some 43 times in the Old Testament, and it refers always to human activity always. Kana is reserved explicitly and exclusively for when referring to a characteristic of Yehovah. Kina is used to denote jealousy like of a rival lover or envy of another's wealth and possessions. It is, if you would, the human form of jealousy in all of its unflattering qualities. Kana, on the other hand, is not so much about jealousy as it is about being passionate. Not the erotic form of passionate, but rather in the sense of great intensity, of being impassioned towards an ideal. It is the Lord and all of his unwavering righteousness. Used here, it is an expression that means that God accepts no rivals, that he is Utterly and absolutely intolerant of sins against him. Now, frankly, we ought to never see that word jealousy used in this way in our Bibles. Due to what it means to humans in our day. Okay, Because it gives us an entirely wrong impression of what was meant and, and it ascribes a characteristic to the Lord that's considerably off the mark. Okay? Now, continuing with verse 5 and on into verse 6. God speaks of punishing the children of those who violate the second word on into the third and fourth generations, but showing mercy to all who love God, love, by the way, meaning an intention to be loyal and obedient to him, into the thousandth generation. First, the easy part of this. Saying... Into the third and fourth generations is a Hebrew idiom. Okay. Just as into the thousandth generation is an idiom. The first expression means that for some time, but not forever, your descendants will adversely be affected by your sin. The second expression about the thousandth generation means basically forever. Okay. Now note something interesting about this. Note that God's wrath as a result of man's sin is for a short time. Third, fourth generation. While His mercy and His grace and His kindness is symbolized as being for a much longer period. A thousand generations to those who love Him. You see? the weight set up here? How much greater his mercy and love is? Now another stark contrast is drawn here using absolute and powerful words. Those who obey this second command are said to love God, and those who disobey it are said to hate God. Love versus hate. And we can appeal by saying, but you know, even if I have ignorantly violated this word, I don't hate God. I love Him. The problem is that this command is, as are all of them, presented from God's point of view, not ours. Okay, our view is irrelevant. God says that as far as He's concerned, the one who violates this word He sees as demonstrating hatefulness towards him. Man, that's tough. That is really tough. Yet he also sees the one who obeys this second word as demonstrating love towards him. Does that mean that even a non-believer who consciously obeys this command, God views as loving him? Yeah, that's exactly what it means. See, that's the thing. Loving God is not the requisite for salvation. Trusting God is the requisite for salvation. Okay. On the coming day of judgment, millions, probably billions, of people who profess to love God in their own way are going to be condemned for all eternity because even though in their minds they loved God, they didn't trust Him. They didn't trust Him enough to accept the saving provision of His Son. Now, conversely, a believer can be found violating this principle and also be regarded by Jehovah as hating Him. That is, God can look upon a believer as hating him even though that believer is eternally secured in Christ. Why? Because the only relevant issue for salvation is trusting Messiah. Okay? Now don't get up all hung up on, the, on this love and hate issue. Okay, Christians for centuries have had this mistaken impression that biblical love and hate are all about feelings and emotions. Okay. From the Hebrew language viewpoint, love is expressed in action. So is hate. Okay, so what loving God amounts to is doing what his commands, what he commands, or avoiding what he prohibits, while hating God is to do the opposite. You with me? Now, let's read a little further. Exodus 20 verse 7. You are not to use lightly the name of Adonai your God because Adonai will not leave unpunished someone who uses his name lightly. The third word is basically we're not to use God's name in vain. And by the way, what is God's name? yud Hey vav Hey. God is not God's name. God is just a general reference to Yehovah. Let me repeat something I've said time and time again. The vast majority of the time in our Bibles that we see the word God or Lord, the actual word in the original Hebrew is yud vav God's personal formal name. This is not conjecture or opinion. It's just simple truth. What do I mean by vast majority? How about better than 95% of the time? While we often think of the primary principle of the third word in terms of a prohibition against using swear words, this is not the entirety of what was meant by this. In fact, that's a far too narrow sense of what was intended here. Okay, the Hebrew word that is usually translated as in vain is shav. Okay, and shav indeed indicates vanity. But it also means falseness, worthlessness, carelessness, or emptiness of speech. It means that using God's names to be done with the greatest care. Okay, with the highest reverence. Now, it is this concept of human carelessness that eventually led the Jewish people into prohibiting the name of God to be spoken spoken out loud altogether. In fact, other than when copying Holy Scripture, the tradition became that His Holy Name was also not to be written. Therefore, it's common in in, in Jewish writings to see God written In some form similar to this, G slash D. Now the sages disagree a bit on exactly when this prohibition against verbalizing the Lord's formal name occurred. The earliest was probably around the time of the Babylonian exile. The latest around the time of Alexander the Great. So we're talking roughly a 500 B.C. to 300 B.C. time frame in there somewhere. However, the sages and rabbis generally agree that before that time, the holy name was spoken and written. There is absolutely no known document or oral tradition prior to this time frame that I just mentioned about not speaking God's name. So for a period of at least seven centuries, perhaps as much as a thousand years, Hebrews openly spoke God's name. And ancient Hebrew artifacts, artifacts have been found and they're on display in the Israeli National Museum that have the Hebrew letters Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh inscribed on them. Anybody can walk up and see them. Now as much respect as I have For the intention of the Jewish people to reverence the Lord's name by not attempting to pronounce it, I don't agree with the concept. Okay, I've studied this thing backwards and forwards, and I cannot escape the fact that the purpose of the third commandment, from my view, is primarily not to invoke the Lord's name frivolously, and usually, primarily, as part of a vow. Because... When you vow something using yud hey vav as surety of that vow, you had better accomplish it, regardless of the consequences, or you have indeed taken his name in vain. What's one of the most famous stories of the in the Bible of somebody making a rash vow? Jephthah, all right, in which he wound up sacrificing his own daughter. Okay, the secondary purpose is that one not commit perjury using God's name as surety for your statement. Now, I also think that because the Lord has his holy name written over 6,000 times in the word and in several scriptures it plainly says to call on his name or to do thus and so in his name, I find it difficult to not do the very thing it seems to me we're told to do, say his name. I mentioned at the outset today that we can't be sure just how to pronounce that holy name because we're not sure of the ancient Hebrew vowel sounds. But even, and keep this in mind, even if we did know for sure the vowel sounds, not everyone would even pronounce his name perfectly. Or uniformly, because of Language variations. I mean, when we moved to the South, it took me three years to figure out what most of y'all were saying. You know? I mean, the principle of the third word is, I don't believe, is about mispronunciation of His Holy Name. It's about misuse of His Holy Name. All that said, I would ask Gentile Christians to be kind, and respectful and sensitive to our Jewish brothers and sisters' tradition of not saying God's name. And I would also ask our Jewish brothers and sisters to not be personally offended by those of us who see nothing wrong in an honest attempt to honor the Lord by pronouncing his holy name, even if we don't do it perfectly. Next week we'll take up the fourth commandment, honoring the Sabbath.